Well, it's good to see a pretty full room here this morning. What an encouragement. Uh, those of you still on the live stream, um, I want to exhort some of you, and I know there are some among you that must stay away. I know that's true. Health reasons, accessibility, I get that. But let me exhort those of you who every other part of your life has kind of gone to normal and you go to restaurants and you do things. Let me encourage you to come back to the room. Because the church means assembly. And that has physical dimension to it. Um, my own very limited experience with having to participate in the live stream when uh, we were quarantining and kept away because of our own COVID uh, experience, uh, I felt was extraordinarily frustrating. <laughs> I can't imagine what it's like. Maybe, maybe you've gotten used to it, but let me encourage you, if you can, if there's no medical reason to stay away, please, please come back. Join with the body and fellowship. Well, this morning we're going to uh, turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, uh, and our text is a fairly long one, so let me encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles. I know how this goes. If uh, in a long text read together, if you're not tracking in a Bible, it's going to be challenging to pay attention. So I would encourage you. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 through chapter 7, verse 24. I'm going to read it all. Um, the Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So we're going to read the Scripture. And I'll do my very best not to fumble my way. So let's give our attention to God speaking as His Word is read. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which the breath of life in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, 
Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and the pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and its mate, and seven pairs of birds to the heavens of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of the waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock, according to their kinds, Every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, and of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the bread of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is God's word. We give him thanks for that. I invite you to pray with me as we ask for help. We need help, divine help, that we would be shown Christ. Let's pray. Father, this word is true because you have spoken it not only is it true it is living it is active sharper than any sword and it finds its way when declared into the very core of our being dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow discerning our very thoughts and intentions before you. It is by this word that we are laid open before you 
you see us. We are confronted. So God, we pray in this time that you would accomplish your work. Do something among us that no mere man can do. Cause your word to be planted on our hearts and show us your son. And may we in our individual lives and collectively as a church respond as we ought, as you've determined for us to respond. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are supple and ready to hear and apply what you have said to us. And may Christ be glorified. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, having been uh, raised in the church, my, my parents were believers and took us to church all the time. We heard the gospel routinely. Um, we were taught Bible stories such as this one from a very young age. I remember them in Sunday school class. And actually, Kathy and I used to have this book that we would read to our children that went through all the major Bible stories. And I was thinking about this as I studied this passage this week. The way that Bible stories are, are often told to little kids often obscures the intent I think you'd probably agree that the way the Noah story has been told, uh, w like I said, with, with our kids, we had this book of Bible stories. And what I remember the focus of the Noah story being, it seemed to be how the animals were brought into the ark, two by two. But as we read through the text, I, I think you can see that that's not primarily what the story is about. If we're to try to find some sort of analogy some modern-day equivalent of this story in a movie form. Perhaps it would be more akin to End of Days or Independence Day or, for the older ones, Dr. Strangelove. You know, impending doom. Maybe at least as it regards the human experience. It's not a very cute story, is it? The story of how Millions, even billions of people are wiped out in a deluge. So the story isn't primarily about the ark. It's not primarily about the animals in the ark or those who were wiped out. It's not even primarily about Noah and his family. It's about God. The story is about what God thinks. This story is about what God wants. This story is about what God does. Now, this was an essential lesson for the Israelite tribes as they were about to possess the land of Canaan. If we think of the, the book of Genesis along with the, the other four books of the Pentateuch, it's a story of, of paradise given paradise lost, and, and then the story of how they might regain it again. All the story of how God was gracious in the face of the rebellion of, of humankind to provide a way, a way for them to be with Him, and a warning not to take lightly the very character of God, that He is a holy God. So it was an essential lesson for the Israelite tribes, but it's also an essential lesson for us. If we want to find our way back to Eden, metaphorically speaking, find our way back to a paradise with, that involves fellowship with God, to be ultimately welcomed into the kingdom of God, we must heed this story and what it teaches us. So as we unpack it, I want to frame this as we unpack the story under three headings. 
God's judgment, God's man, and God's rescue. I said it was about God. God's judgment, God's man, and God's rescue. Well, let's first get to God's judgment. The word judgment. It's not a very pleasant word, is it? I think um, at some level, most of our contemporaries have an aversion to judgment. How often do you hear somebody say, don't judge me, (laughs) they'll say. And as far as our society is concerned, it would seem that in the, especially in the wake of the sexual revolution, certain moral judgments are now unacceptable, right? Promiscuity, adultery, pornography, homosexuality may be discussed with the caveat. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That's not what God thinks. But of course, in our society, or subset of our society, what was considered immoral is now supposed to be good, right? Those who might oppose that stance are considered evil. For example, killing the unborn. It's offered up as a moral good. And those who might oppose it are considered evil and oppressive and misogynistic. Yet other judgments made by society seem to be at least at the fore for the sake of restoring a semblance of justice or the very survival of the planet. And we can see this if you just follow the news. The greatest moral concerns of the day seem to be racism, and I'm not minimizing it. Racism and climate change. You see, our society has a very subjective view of of right and wrong. And while many, many would resist being the target of judgment, they are likewise content to be in the place of judge, (laughs) right? And that fact alone about us as humanity, I think that because we are inclined to judge, even if that judgment is rather disordered, It is a reflection of the very fact that there is a distinction between good and evil, an objective one, because there is ultimately a God who makes that distinction. And we see him acting on that in this section of the scriptures. In our text, God's judgment is is right before us. And as a result of that judgment, God declares what the consequence will be. Chapter 6, verse 13, he says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. I will destroy them with the earth. Chapter 6, verse 7, just before that, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals, creeping things, birds. Why? Why? Well, of course, we have to rewind. Come to the beginning of the story. Adam and Eve sinned. We know this. He said, The day you take of that fruit, you shall surely die. They died in in a spiritual sense. They were separated from the life of God. They died physically eventually. Cain, following in the footsteps of his mother and father, was warned, sin is crouching at your door. You must rule over it. He did not. He killed his brother. And he was sent away, further away from the Lord. Cain's progeny built an entire civilization away from the Lord, a civilization built on the glory of man, not for the glory of God. And yet in a moment that seemed hopeful, the Lord then appointed Seth to be the father of a generation of people that called upon the name of the Lord. But then we fast forward. 
after several generations, those people were eventually corrupted when the sons of God, that is to say, the line of Cain, married, sorry, the sons of God, which is the line of Seth, married into the line of Cain, perceiving that their daughters were beautiful without any regard to their moral worth. It brings us to chapter 6, verse 11. Corruption. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. Now, what that violence may be, might have been warring against one another, indiscriminate killing, but it could simply be violence against the very commands of God. Doing violence to what God had said. Doing violence to the creation. Doing violence to one another. Well, God saw that the earth was corrupt. He saw it. He took notice of it, that all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All flesh. Verse 13 of chapter 6, the earth is filled with violence. You you see a great deal of repetition in in this section, don't we? Repeated over and over and over again. Well, how did God determine to act? Well, he will blot out. I will bring a flood upon the earth, it says in chapter 6, verse 17. And in a sense, the, the idea of water washing everything away, the idea of cleansing, it had been so, it become so morally filthy that it needed to be cleansed. So he sends a flood to destroy all flesh. All flesh. Everything that breathes will die. And God did it. God did it. All flesh died. We read this already. All flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, all mankind, everything on dry land whose nostrils was the breath of life. He blotted out every living thing on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. You just don't see that in the kids' children's stories of the Bible, do you? But that's what God did. Now, we have to pause here. How does it make you feel? What do you think about that when you read that? I think there's a a piece of us that says, is that really necessary, God? Later in Genesis, patriarch Abraham, he's, he's pleading for what he believes to be the righteous people in the city of Sodom. He asks the Lord, shall not the judge of all the earth, do it as just. And in Abraham's mind, there are just people in there. Don't wipe them out. Shall not the judge of all the earth do it as just? And of course, the answer is yes. And he wiped out Sodom, rescuing Lot. And when God judged that, he was fully justified. Just as he was in Noah's day, he was fully justified because God alone is judge of all the earth. Now maybe where you sit this morning, or you're listening or watching, Maybe struggle with this fact. If this is you, your problem is not with God. If you struggle with the fact of God's judgment, your problem is not with God. Your problem is not fully understanding human depravity and how God regards sin. He hates it. He loathes it. And our generation is not much different from Noah's, is it? And I know the way we think about ourselves, well, we're not that bad. Really? We're not that bad. 
Well, it's not what the scripture says. Quoting Psalm 14, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, poisonous stinks, is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the indictment on humanity. And when we look within and we see who we truly are, we know all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And that there is yet on this earth anyone alive and breathing. It is purely because of the mercy of God. Now, is the world concerned about judgment? I was asking that question as I thought about this. The, the idea of a judgment coming, that, that has largely left our vocabulary. And I'm not saying we in the church, but just broadly speaking in society. And yet there is one way that the society around us, our contemporaries, talk about judgment. The idea of a, a future cataclysmic event. And what is the indictment from a godless world? No, it's not that we are personally guilty for our own sin before the Lord who is holy. No. The way the world sees impending judgment is not that this nation has the blood of some 62 million murdered babies since Roe versus Wade. Of course, the kind of violence there certainly dwarfs what happened in the horrors of the Holocaust. People are hesitant to make that com comparison. What's the indictment? Is It's not for how this nation disorders the idea of marriage. Our contemporaries celebrate this as a triumph of freedom. Our world is largely unconcerned about what God's Word says, but they do see that some sense judgment is coming. One of the greatest concerns seems to be the state of the climate. The prophets have been preaching that the end is less than 12 years. You hear it in the news. And I can't help but thinking, not just point that out, but, but that's the only time judgment seems to come up, right? I can't help but think that this fixation on climate is this futile way to, to assuage personal guilt before God. In the mind of the extreme environmentalists, sounding the alarm becomes the declaration of their own innocence. Setting God aside, they have concluded the earth is the thing to be honored above all else. And it will judge humankind for its abuse of her. Yeah, judgment is coming. For those who, who have completely ignored this, and the environmentalists who have completely missed this truth, judgment is coming. Jesus said this, Matthew 13, The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. Pay attention, he said. Now in the time of Noah, it was a flood. God's wrath is yet to be poured out on the earth. And I wonder, where will you stand on that day? Have you made light of sin?
Have you thought, well, the Bible's kind of out of date. Have you thought, well, the God of the Old Testament isn't the same God today. He's, he's much more gentle. He's, well, God has been patient. That the earth has not been destroyed as yet is certainly a testament to that. Where will you stand on that day? Well, that brings us to our second heading, God's man, God's man. Who are the standouts in our culture? We can think of all of the people that get fame or, or that are recognized among us. Those who accomplish something that the culture values, right? People famous for the arts and music, movies. Or maybe certain politicians who make the right kinds of promises. Maybe uber-wealthy entrepreneurs who make something that everybody just can't live without. But listen, when was the last time someone was famous for being righteous? How about never? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that there's any occasion where the world has said, there's a righteous person. Yet when God chose someone through whom to save the human race, he didn't pick an innovator, he didn't pick a, a captain of industry, he didn't pick someone who was uniquely skilled as a man of war. He chose a man blameless in his generation. And who is God's man? Noah. Noah, chapter 6, verse 10, was a righteous man. Noah was a righteous man. Now this doesn't mean that Noah never sinned. No, it doesn't mean that. He still had the same stain that Adam and Eve had after they took of the fruit. He was born in sin. In sin did his mother conceive him, as, the, as uh, King David said. No, he was not perfect. Yet Noah was considered blameless in his generation, which is to say that he was, he was oriented towards righteousness, that, that he desired in his heart righteousness, that when he did sin, he regretted it, that in his heart, he desired, he desired deeply what was good and pure before the Lord. Now, why this inclination? The text tells us, Noah walked with God. That's why in, in chapter 6, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what does it mean to walk with God and so find favor with Him? What does that mean? I was thinking about this. Uh, Kathy and I like to take walks. It's good for exercise, but I really enjoy those times. But several things happen on a typical walk that we don't even think about. We're inclined to talk, talk about anything and everything, things important, things incidental, the weather, talk about our kids, our grandkids, our plans, what matters. But also, we stay together. We're walking together. We, we agree on the direction. Should we go this way? No, let's go this way. Should we take a different path? And we, we agree, or at least we work towards agreeing if there's been some disagreement. I look forward to these walks. I look forward to drives with her in the car. We can enjoy one another. Now, then we take this and we think about how did Noah walk with God? What did it mean? It meant that he listened to the Lord. He understood what mattered to the Lord, that he knew the direction that he should go. Of course, this is, you know, infinitely superior to subject, but that's okay. Noah walked with the one who was in charge. Where are you going? I'll go there. This is what matters, Noah. Okay. But more than anything, he can enjoy the Lord. That's what it means to walk with God, is to enjoy 
the Lord. Not to stand at a distance and, and view him as some sort of brutal, capricious ruler who just changes his mind on a whim. No, Noah walked with God. He was in step with God. This is what the Lord intended for the humans ever since the beginning of creation, right? When God created the man and the woman, he put them in a garden, a lush place where God provided everything. And the Lord God walked among them, fellowshiped with them. And we have no idea what the rest of Noah's generation thought about God. We just know that they were disobedient. They were godless. Had they become atheists per se? Had they denied his existence? Or had they simply decided in their hearts that God didn't understand or that he didn't matter? Now listen, today there are all kinds of people who acknowledge God. They acknowledge the existence of God. They, they say they believe in God, but they don't walk with God. And most of us probably know people and tragically, maybe even our own family members who say they believe in God, but don't walk with God. And they live as if his word is irrelevant, that his word is outdated or unimportant or just too hard to obey, too inconvenient. And maybe on the other hand, there are others who, who think that God is somehow impressed with some kind of heroic service that they offer, but the rest of their lives are marked by simply ignoring what he says. Jesus warned about people like that. Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me just pause there. When Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, you know, in the, the scriptures, New Testament, when you say someone's name twice, the person who is addressing that other individual says, we know each other. I know you. It's like when Jesus told Peter he was going to die, and Jesus said, Peter, Peter. These people think they know the Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Now that sends a shudder up my spine. Did I not preach in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus said this, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a horrifying scene. These are people who do not walk with God. So what does it mean to walk with God? It means to believe Him. Believing in God is believing what He says about anything and everything the totality of his word. We don't pick and choose and go, well, you know what, that's not so much that part. I don't like that. But the other stuff, that's great. No. Walking with God is believing everything that he said, taking all of his word to heart, all of the scriptures. And this is why Abraham, the patriarch, we've mentioned him already, why he was counted righteous before the Lord, right? The Lord called him and said, I'm going to send you to some place. Just trust me. I'll tell you where you're going to go. You're going to have some offspring and there's going to be Numerous people. Look at the stars. So shall offspring be, okay? Scripture tells us, and he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. And what did God do? And he counted it to him as righteousness. Because Abraham believed, he was counted righteous. See, true faith, true faith is walking with God, 
That's why the writer of Hebrews says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God, now this is logical, right? If you were to draw near to God, you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Seeking the Lord, walking with the Lord, drawing near to the Lord. Where's God going? That's where I want to be. So Noah walked with God, therefore he had faith in God. And so as a result, chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. All of these instructions for the ark. Chapter 7, verse 5, it says again, it's repetitive. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And the Lord declares in 7.1, you are righteous before me in this generation. Noah stood alone. He was unique in his generation. He alone was blameless in his generation. Now, maybe you're just starting out. Or maybe you're already tracking in the career path that you've chosen. I'm, I'm wondering, what's the end game? What do you... What do you have in mind is that the ultimate goal of this life? Do you have in mind to make a name for yourself, to accomplish something that will get you noticed? Is that, is that the end game? Well, I can think of no better goal for life than to be considered blameless in your generation. And just as it was for Noah, so it is today. Now, there is only one way. We've talked about the sin of humanity, right? So there's only one way to be regarded before the Lord as one who is blameless. There is but one way to be counted as righteous before the Lord. What Noah, though flawed, was to his own generation, Jesus, the Son of God, in his perfection, is to all Mankind, he is God's man. Jesus is God's man. Jesus is the one who experienced the full measure of human suffering and weakness, yet he was without sin. And because Jesus lived that pristine life, all of us who have trusted in him, all of us who have truly put our faith in him will not be subject to condemnation we will not be subject to judgment because Jesus suffered that judgment on our behalf. Apostle Paul says to the Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law be by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was hanged on a tree and he was cursed so that you and I would not have to be. And so because Jesus indeed suffered vicariously, that is to say in our place and for us, Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 1, glorious verses to take to heart. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So because the God-man, Jesus, is God's man, we who have trusted in him are now, now empowered to be blameless in our own generation. We're empowered. And I hope you see that as good news. We don't have it in us to be and do what is righteous, not in our own selves. So we walk with God. This is what Jesus said. John 15. He said, I am the vine. Using this picture of a, of a, of a vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Now, he goes on. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch, that, and it withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. We walk with God by abiding in Christ. We abide in Christ so that we may bear much fruit. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. That's what Noah did. He walked with God. He couldn't have done any of the righteous things. He couldn't have been considered blameless in his generation unless he walked with God. Walking with God is simply believing Him and trusting Him moment by moment. So let me ask you, are you God's man or His woman? What I mean by that is, are you standing in Christ who is God's man? And are you finding the power to increasingly grow and be blameless in this generation? Well, finally, we have God's rescue. God's rescue. Uh, I was picturing uh, the idea of someone who is a sailor, someone on a boat, maybe a, a fisherman on a boat, but someone who is washed overboard from a rogue wave knows in that moment that they need someone to throw the life preserver to get them out, right? They get that. But there are other kinds of things that are perilous that we tend not to recognize, right? For example, a carbon monoxide leak in your house. It may go undetected, but it's deadly, is it not? And so to know that death is looming, that you're in trouble, <laughs> you need to be told. Someone needs to do an assessment. The situation in Noah's time, was a peril that no one seemed concerned about. And the Lord picked Noah and made him to be a herald of righteousness, as it says in 2 Peter 2.5. He proclaimed God's truth in that generation. They still ignored him, but they were given the assessment. God provides the rescue. Now, God is determined, determined to judge so we're back in our text here. He has told Noah that he will save him. And then God shows him how he will rescue him from the judgment. And he makes a promise. Chapter 6, verse 18. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark. I will establish my covenant. That's a promise that the Lord makes. That he determines the terms of. Notice how precise it is. Listen, I won't go through all the details. We read it, but notice there's just so much detail in this, right? Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Well, here's the wood you're supposed to use. Make rooms. Seal it with pitch. How long, how wide, how tall. A roof, an access door, three decks. Bring in food supplies. How to build the ark. What to put on the ark. Who gets to be saved? Noah's wife and three sons and their wives. And then a plan for repopulating the earth. Male and female of each kind. Not just people population, but animal population. Each kind of bird, animals, creeping things. And then on top of that, seven pairs of clean animals, presumably for sacrifice or, or perhaps eating when, when uh, they exit the ark and God gives permission to eat meat. What's clear from the text, though, is that you notice that there's no negotiating on Noah's part. Now, we don't expect it because we know the story, right? He doesn't ask God to explain himself. He simply believes that to be saved, he must trust what God has said and to do it down to every last detail. God's rescue plan for Noah has this direct benefit for him and his family. He gets to be saved from that deluge of judgment. 
But notice that God's plan also has the saving of future peoples too. His sons and their wives are to be saved. So repopulating the earth. The rescue of Noah from judgment and his generation ultimately points forward to a greater, a greater and eternal rescue in Jesus. God made that covenant, that promise with Noah to save him. But through the cross, God has made a covenant, a new covenant through the blood of his son, Jesus. Just as Jesus told his disciples, and we're going to celebrate this in a few moments. When he was gathered with them in the upper room, he said, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In Jesus' blood. Salvation by faith in what Jesus would accomplish, not by any other means, no other means. Now with the reality of eternal judgment looming, ever since the time of Noah, people have thought and lived as that they could establish their own terms of being rescued or ignoring the fact entirely that there is any threat hanging over them, like someone living in a home that has a carbon monoxide leak, but they don't want to have it tested. You're going to die. Rather than, again, since the beginning of time, rather than trust what God has said, many turn to idols, false gods, supposing them to be the path of rescue, appeasing them. But more often, is it not true, and it's true of our society today, more often it's the idolization of self, self-indulgence, self-aggrandizing, self-seeking, and ultimately rejecting God by behavior. Like I said, it was true in Noah's day, it's true in our day as well. And since Jesus walked the earth, the terms of our saving as he preached, beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The ingathering of the people of God, the kingdom of God, that glorious time in the return to Eden, the kingdom where, where God rules and you're in fellowship with him. The kingdom of God is at hand. What do you need to do? Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. The thing that Noah's generation failed to do, repent. Turn away from your sin. Sin as God defines it. There's this great danger. Again, I find myself lamenting these things. Great danger in our time of many who profess to know Christ. Experiencing the leadership in, in churches that have denied the word of God. Churches who attempt to cozy up to the world. They've abandoned the necessity of true repentance. And, and I'm gonna, I know I keep harping on this, but it's, I think it's emblematic it's that affirmation of same-sex unions by churches. That's not the only sin that's condemnable, but, but when the church bows to the culture on such a very clear biblical prohibition, then really is there any point of obedience to God's word that will not ultimately be sacrificed on the altar of convenience and cultural accommodation? Is there anything that will stand up? So in the wake of some churches bending to the so-called enlightened, yet godless cultural elites, they have collectively and blasphemously concluded that God needs to get with the program. God doesn't need to get with the program. We need to get with the program. Now, the good news 
about Jesus demands, demands that we abandon all efforts of self-saving, all ideas of setting the standard. We must abandon all of that. Any efforts at self-defining salvation, and we must throw ourselves completely on Christ. There were some infiltrators in the Apostle Paul's day in the church in Galatia. Infiltrators tried to, to lead the believers in Jesus in away from the church, away from, from, from Christ by adding self-justifying religious duties, circumcision and kosher food laws. They wanted them to return to the Jewish stuff. But the Apostle Paul set the record straight. And when we think about the precision with which God provided for Noah to be saved, we must likewise consider the precision with which we are to be saved in Christ. If we, the Apostle Paul says in, first, in Galatians 1, 8, 9, even if we or an angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's serious. That's horrific. If someone distorts the gospel, let him go to hell. That's what he's saying. As we said to you before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching the gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The saving message of Jesus, the saving gospel message is about Jesus who is the Son of God. It's about what he accomplished in his life. He lived flawlessly. He obeyed the law. There wasn't a hint of sin. He was perfect in every way. He died. Not as an accident of history, but as an intentional plan and purpose of God to allow the evil in the world to so organize themselves against the very Son of God that they would nail Him up to a Roman cross, hoist Him high in the air, consider themselves as triumphant over this rabble-rouser. All the while, God counted that as a sacrifice for all who would look to Him in faith. And because Jesus, the Son of God, was no mere man, but truly God, the grave could not contain him. And he emerged from that grave on the third day, effectively stepping on the head of the serpent who tempted Eve way back in the garden, guaranteeing for life, guaranteeing life for all who put their trust in him. So we, we who believe, find God's rescue in Christ. He has become our ark. But this gospel lands in our ears and our hearts, and it's not only for our own saving, but it's to repopulate the earth, as it were. The Apostle Peter said to Cornelius, after being surprised, that indeed the gospel gets to go to the Gentiles too. Peter says to him, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge and the living of the living and the dead. He tells this to Cornelius, a Gentile who has come to believe in Jesus. Peter knows we have to preach to people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. That's Jesus. 
To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone, here's the good news, who believes in him receives forgiveness through his name. We have a mission. That's why we're here this morning, brothers and sisters, because we're bound together by this reality. Jesus is the one who will judge the living and the dead. But Jesus bore the full measure of the wrath of God for all who put their faith in him so that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And I trust that that's where you are this morning, that you have found forgiveness in the name of Jesus. Jesus is God's rescue. Judgment is coming. We must beware. Jesus is God's man. He is the one who is perfect. Put your trust in him because it's through Jesus that we find God's eternal rescue. Let's pray. Lord, there's an evil generation around us, um, but we're not much different. We see the corruption in our own hearts and really our only rescue is not that we have cleaned ourselves up, but that we have ultimately put our faith in the Lord Jesus. And I thank you for that. I thank you for revealing Jesus as the, the means to our rescue from judgment. And God, as your people, I pray that we will continue to walk with him by faith so that in increasing measure, we, we continually bear his image, that we become imitators of you, our Father, as dearly loved children. Strengthen our witness. Keep this good news on our lips and make us ready to give an answer to anyone who asks the reason for the hope that we have. As we share around the table of our Lord, we pray, Father, that um, the tangible elements of the body and the blood of Jesus symbolized here in the bread and the cup, Lord, that it will further strengthen our faith and our delight in what's been accomplished for us. So continue with us now by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.